Well, um, last week, we found that in the first part of this passage that something incredible happens. Something incredible happens when people become Christians. And this is functioning as a part two to that. But what we found is that our earthly lives of sin, our earthly lives of sin and rebellion to God died, and our new heavenly lives empowering us to leave all that behind graciously and effectively were birthed. That happened uh, to you if, when you became a Christian. Your earthly life died, Paul says, and your heavenly life came to, into being. And uh, so the first part of that we looked at last week, which is that empowers us to graciously and effectively deal with sin in our lives. If you, if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and, and give it a listen. Um, it has some great stuff there. But something else happens too. A second piece happens is what Paul tells us here in Colossians chapter 3. And the second piece is just as important as the first. Um, you see, the Colossians were struggling. They were, they were really struggling. They were in a city. Colossae was a city, a big city in the ancient world. And they were experiencing something that all cities actually experience. They were experiencing something that all cities experience. They had a host of people that hailed from different races, different places, with differing incomes. You couldn't hide it back then. There's no like bank accounts really to hide your incomes. Different outlooks on life. And Paul had heard a report from the man who started this church that there was a bunch of fighting that was happening in the church in Colossae, that it was full of contention and strife, Christian infighting. Have you ever heard of this? seems like you can bump into someone pretty easily that would have a story about a time when a church suffered from fighting with each other and splitting apart. Here's an example of it 2,000 years ago. Now, here at Sedaris, I, I know that we have people who prefer red vines and people who prefer Twizzlers, okay? Quick show of hands. I just want to know, who, where, where are my Twizzlers at? Where are my Twizzler people at? Yeah, that's great. Now, red vines? Ooh, red vines is winning here. Wow, that's remarkable. That is remarkable. No, no, no. But, but seriously, we have people that come from a variety of backgrounds here. We have people who grew up in the church, people who did not, people who grew up in very different churches. There are people from around here, people from the South, people from the Wild West, like myself and Tim, Colorado. Come on. Even people from Texas. There are some people who are here from Korea, from Argentina, from Scotland, Cambodia. Indonesia, there are people here who are from Korea by way of Alabama. <laughs> That's Youngman, he's on the keys. He says he's from Alabama. He, he identifies more with Alabama than Korea. That's great. Uh, from, from India by way of Redmond, from Turkey by way of California. We even have some folks from Issaquah. A very exotic place. I, I thought it would be when I first moved here a couple of years ago. Uh, turns out it's not that exotic. Uh, a different world, yes. Exotic, no. But, but seriously, we, we have people who vote liberally here. We have people who vote conservatively. We have people who don't vote. We have people in each one of the tax brackets here at Sedaris Church. You see, city churches are made up of people who are from everywhere. And at Sedaris, we hope to be a community that navigates big, meaningful conversations in transparency, humility, and vulnerability. And so as such, diversity is a huge task. Or you could actually say it like this, unity in the midst of diversity is a great task for us. We have our work cut out for us. 
Because that's really what's at stake here. Unity in the midst of diversity is at stake. I, I phrase it like that intentionally because you can have diversity without true unity. That, that, that's really easy. Just don't talk about anything of eternal significance, rally around big corporate slogans, and pay people $80,000 a year. That's how Amazon does it. Great, diverse workplace, pretty easy to do. But I don't think any of you are being paid $80,000 a year to be here. So we have, uh, we have a different driver for the Christian church that's actually driving towards a more significant unity as well, okay? Because this is what we have to recognize. Think about the people you disagree with. They are almost, by definition, different than you. It's almost required that they are di- you disagree with them because they are different than you. And so what's at stake? A unified diversity is at stake. And so this passage that, that Lena read today is crucial for, for cities like Colossae, crucial for cities like Seattle, crucial for us, okay? And, and so to help urban churches navigate this dilemma, Paul contrasts the old self with our redeemed new self in this passage. That's what he's doing Or or to use our language from last week and earlier in this passage, he's contrasting our old earthly life and body combination with our new earthly life and body combination. That's what he's doing in this passage to help us. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to unpack this old self, new self dynamic together. That's the first thing we'll do. Then what we're going to do is is we're going to just look at that new self side of things. What characterizes life in the new self? That's the second thing we're going to do. And then we're going to see uh, how Paul encourages us to get on board. He says, if you want to get on board with this, here are four things for you. So we're going to unpack those four things. So that's the flow. Let's start with the first one. Let's talk about the dynamics of these selves, these old self, this old self and this new self. Now, Paul talks about these with the same nuance that he talked about um, the heavenly life and the earthly life last week. Last week, he he said this. He said, um, you have died now put to death. You see like, the conundrum that we're in here? You have died, but now put to death. He says that the old self has been put off, the new self has been put on. However, he then urges us to put off the old self and put on the new self. Well, what's really going on here, Paul? Which is it? Have these things happened? Or are these things that we're supposed to do in order to make them happen? And the answer to that question is yes, it's, it's both. And if that confuses you, that's okay. That's okay. This is counterintuitive. This, there's a little bit of mystery that's even involved here. Paul is really talking about a past completed reality that empowers Christians to lean into it and do it today in their present actions. If you've heard of anybody talk about this already but not yet kingdom, This is the nuance that they were referring to. Uh, Last week, we put it like this. Paul is, in effect, saying, become what you are. Become what you are. And we unpacked how our already heavenly life controls our earthly body, which is not yet a heavenly body. Okay, Our already heavenly life controls our earthly bodies, which is not yet our heavenly body. Okay? Now, now, Paul is incredibly intelligent. He was incredibly intelligent. And so he knows that this nuance of the Christian life is going to set people back a bit, that it's going to confuse us a little bit. And so in order to help us, he employs a very clever metaphor. And, and this metaphor is actually hidden for the modern reader. 
okay? But it surfaces when we look for the repeated words in the passage, okay? That's actually just a, a great clue. If you're ever studying a passage in the Bible and you want to know what it's all about, look for the repeated words. Look for the repeated words and it'll start to surface. This is what this passage is all about. That's because these, these uh, ancient writers like Paul, they're writing letters to entire groups of people. They knew that they would be read out loud and people can pick out repeated words that are said out loud. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage, starting where this metaphor starts, and see if you can pick it out with your ears, okay? See, see if you can pick it out, okay? If you turned over to Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 8. He says, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the, new self, the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Did you hear it there? Did you catch it? There's this put on thing, put off, put away. This, this put is repeated five times in five sentences. So what's Paul talking about? Well, this is dressing language. This is the language of getting dressed. In, in, in the original Greek, it's much easier to see that Paul is talking about putting clothes on and off, but it's dressing language. Paul says that every Christian has changed their clothes. That when they became a Christian, they took off an old set of clothes, they put them away, and they have put on a new set of clothes. Or you could think of it like this. When you became a Christian, uh, it's similar to a butterfly sloughing out of its cocoon. Sloughing out. It's a very scientific term here. Sloughing out of its cocoon and leaving it behind. In a similar way, when someone becomes a Christian, they slough out of this old clothing and put on the new beauty of a butterfly. I think snakes do something similar, if you need another picture. You know, lots of metaphors flying around here. Keep up. Snakes can slough out of their skin and they're shiny, right? But, but here's the deal. While Paul speaks of this sloughing as something that's already happened, he pivots to nuance again. And he says, now you have to put on the new self. You have to put on these heavenly virtues, in the now, we aren't butterflies that have actually fully sloughed out of our cocoons yet. It's guaranteed, but not yet fully taken place. We're empowered to do it, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. The Christian life is a life marked by this sloughing, okay? And this process will be fully complete and permanent when Christ returns in glory and our heavenly bodies are revealed We'll be fully clothed in our new selves then, okay? Now, let's look a little bit closer. It's, it's helpful to figure out what these things are. What is this old self? What is this old self clothing? What, in fact, are we changing out of? What are we taking off? What are we changing out of? Well, we're changing out of our old self. Changing out of our old self, what does that mean? Part of it is to put us into death. We talked about that last week. But there's a more, more, even more robust way to think about that, um, and, and it becomes apparent when we remember what our old self-life was all about. Do you remember it? Some of us can remember it a little better than others uh, because we just recently came out of that. We've lived the majority, had lived the majority of our lives in that old self-life. But you can think of the old self-life like this. 
It's characterized by boasting in itself. It's characterized by showing itself as something unique and something special. And how does it do this? It's the key. By attaching to it as many things as possible. By attaching to it as many things as possible. What am I talking about here? Um, we, well, we once struggled to find happiness, to find satisfaction, even to find our own identity regarding who we are as distinct from others, as distinct from other people. That, that word identity even has a certain individual flair to it, doesn't it? And, and that's what the old self was all about. It was all about promoting a, a personal greatness of sorts, a personal greatness. Putting on various things as clothing so we could exalt ourselves over others. In, in the most literal sense, it meant putting on certain clothing brands. I mean, who did this in middle school, right? Abercrombie, anybody, come on. You had to go to Abercrombie in middle school. At least I'm 30, so we did. Maybe that died uh, yeah, for you, you younger folk out there. But in the most literal sense, the old self clothes itself in certain brands so it can appear great, okay? But it actually can look a bunch of different ways. It can be with reference to how strong we are, put on strength, how pretty we, we were, how funny we were, witty we were. Here's, here's a tricky one. Even how caring we were, how intelligent we were, successful we were, righteous we were, which institutions and organizations we were attached to, which social justice movements we aligned with, what knowledge we had, what achievements we made. This is the old self, takes all this stuff and, and it would put it on itself to be seen as something great in order to promote ourselves. The old self is always trying to attach things to it so it can be a huge commercial of the self. You can say that. But here's the deal. Paul is saying that God is in the business of obliterating all that, getting rid of it, because the byproduct of people who are trying to exalt themselves over others is necessarily disunifying. You see that? The old self, self-promotion, is necessarily disunifying. There's no way to get around it. You see it absolutely everywhere, everywhere that we turn in our society. You can see it in the political parties, both of them. Undergirding every issue they debate is this fundamental nastiness that they're better than the leaders and members of the other party. You, you see it really clearly um, in all of the, the presidential primaries that happen every four, year, every four years, where the candidates are actually trying to show that they're attaching things to themselves so they can be seen as better than the other candidates who are throwing their hat in the ring. But you, you don't just see it in the top leadership of our nation, you see it in the workplace, where people try to exalt themselves over each other in order to get that next promotion to advance their career through a variety of different strategies, of course. Pecking orders develop in social circles. Men and women fight for romantic positions in other people's lives. The competition for greatness among old selves is everywhere we look. We see it everywhere we look, but not so for Christians. God wants to obliterate that. He wants to obliterate it. He wants to get rid of all that you think made you special and unique. But here's the key. It's actually a great act of compassion, of God acting compassionately towards you. Because he wants to crush what you think you had to attach yourself to in order to mean something. You see that compassion there? You see how all this is really just veiled insecurity? God wants to save his people from that. 
That's why there's verse 11. Paul says this, here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. People stop cherishing their self-exalting things because they necessarily become uh, the, the ultimate things and become divisive. That's the mark of a community. Uh, uh, Paul here is saying he, that God isn't in the business of just creating these, uh, a new self here, a new self there, and, and sprinkling them in the world. No, he's in the business of creating a community that can come together in unity. So two things to say at this point. This community is where people stop cherishing their self-exalting things. Okay? I'm a Greek. I'm a Jew. I'm a barbarian. I'm a Scythian. I'm not a Scythian. I hear these debates all the time in our body, right? No, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm upper class, I'm middle class, I'm lower class, I love sports, I hate sports. You see all these things that the old self can put on that can cause division? God wants to get rid of all that. The mark of the community of God is that they stop cherishing these things, race, nationality, political identification, intellect, tradition, socioeconomic standing, all these things God gets rid of. And the second mark of the community is what he replaces it with. He replaces it with Christ. The mark of a new community is an overwhelming identification with Christ. The new self seeks to identify itself by Christ instead of putting on other things. Instead of finding satisfaction and experiences out in the world, it finds satisfaction in its experience with God and within the community. You see that? Instead of deriving significance from our stuff, we find our significance in the fact that we have, we possess the love of the creator God. How amazing is that? Instead of finding our identity and who and what we associate with and attach ourselves to, we find it in Christ who attached himself to us to take our old rebellious lives and then extend us his graceful powerful new life. All the value that we place in the other stuff which would make us great gets tossed away and Christ becomes all and in all. Christ becomes all. He becomes that which extends you value. This is the new self coming to realization in the here and in the now, okay? Uh, The more you lean into this new self, the more you'll only judge greatness by identification with Christ. And as you do, the less racist, the less sexist, the less nationalistic you will become. Because if we're honest, all of us have those pieces as part of us. It's not just one party's problem. All of us are. There's like this test that they take in workplaces now that shows that everybody is racially insensitive. (laughs) Have you guys taken it? Every single human being. All of us. And the true basis of racial reconciliation, of national reconciliation, political reconciliation, is a community who identifies by Christ and nothing else. When Christ becomes all to a community, everything else fades away. In its most basic sense, uh, Paul is calling us to lean into our heavenly life to gain a glimpse of our heavenly body. This is what we talked about last week. And that heavenly body is Christ. And so when you look a Christian brother or sister in the face, you are beholding Christ. This is the basis for all Christian love, the new self, the new self. 
Now, this is the dressing room metaphor, okay? Before we came to Christ, we dressed really strangely. We put on clothes that we thought would make us seem great and seem special, but those clothes actually serve as the basis for human disunity and discord, okay? There's no way the human race can be unified unless that old self is murdered, what God did through Jesus on the cross, and its self-promoting antics are actively put away, what we do in participation with the Holy Spirit now, okay? And so what happens is that Christ becomes all. So what does this look like, okay? Well, Paul gives us some language about this new self. That's, that's the second thing we said we we're going to do today. He gives us some language about this new self to help us orient ourselves towards what that looks like, okay? Verse 12, he says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Holy and beloved. That's the first thing about the new self. Even before he gets into exactly how we're supposed to put these clothes on, he reminds these Colossian Christians, uh, Christians of something that's already true. They are loved. They have been chosen. They are holy. This is what's true of everybody who becomes a Christian, no matter how well they might be doing on the following list. This is the new self that has been put on them, okay? Uh, what's really cool is just to lean into this word holy. Um, holy is kind of a word that we lose definition of. Nowadays, we don't really use it much anymore. Um, that's fine. Let, let me give you an example to kind of wrap your, help you wrap your head around it. Um, I mountain bike, and so... Uh, if, I'm, if you decide to mountain bike in the winter and spring in Seattle, you are going to get really muddy, really muddy, okay? And, and so I come home from those trips, and my bike is completely covered in mud, completely covered. And before I bring it inside my house, I have to clean it. And so I get my hose out, and I spray it all down, okay? I spray it down. What I'm doing there is the first act of holiness, which is I'm purifying it, okay? Purifying my bike, okay? Stick with me. Purifying my bike, I bring it inside. I also uh, commute on my bike throughout the week, but... I don't commute on that bike. See, I have like an old 80s steel frame road bike that I commute on, okay? Why do I do that? Well, because my mountain bike is set aside, it's purified and set aside for a special function. And that function is to tear apart single track on the east side, okay? I'm not really good at it. I'm really bad at it, actually. So, but that's what, it's holy. It's holy for that special function. And so uh, when Paul reminds the Colossians, this is the second time that he's reminding them in the book that they're holy, he's, he's letting them know, you've been purified and set aside for a special purpose. And what we'll find is that special purpose is to put on the new self, which includes an incredible love for one another. Your purpose is to love your Christian brothers and sisters, no matter what they look like, no matter how different they are from you. That's your special purpose purpose. We think that if, if we get rid of all this old self special and unique clothing that we'll lose our specialness, but we have a much more special purpose on this earth than attaching ourselves to things on the outside, to love one another, okay? So that's the first thing Paul does. He grounds all of this stuff in the new self-reality that's true for us, okay? Two things I want to say here before we move on to the list. Um, New self-activities that seem to be informed by heavenly realities done by non-Christians still are driven by old self-motivations, and we have to, to recognize that. They're still done to promote self-greatness, no matter how altruistic they might look. Now, that might be a big statement for you to, to hear that, okay? That might be a big statement. Um, 
But what we have to recognize is that several people put on altruism to be seen as great in the eyes of others, okay? Now, don't hear me wrong. That's not to say that, that nothing of, the, of their efforts and, and their, their, their striving does any good. That's not what I'm saying. A lot of good can still come from it. But it still pales into comparison of a motivation that is driven by the love of Christ for his body and for the world, okay? Um, that's Paul's story, by the way. That's Paul's story. He was the most righteous and the most altruistic person in his city before he became a Christian. Before he became a Christian, he was an observing Jewish leader. He gave more money and sacrificed more for the poor than anybody else in his city. And you know what he says about those actions that he did before he became Christ? He says he counts them all as rubbish. He said, God obliterated all that. That motivation to make myself great by giving to others, God obliterated that. He said, it's all rubbish to me. That's Paul's story. Um, the, the second thing is um, putting on new clothes, taking off the old clothes. It's not legalism, okay? Um, legalism is the result of conceiving of a transaction that takes place as we do it, okay? So, so the actions themselves are not legalistic, but the actions themselves can become legalistic if we conceive of them as gaining the attention, the approval, and the love of God. That's legalism, okay? If we, when we do things thinking, okay, God will notice me. Or if we do things like God will approve of me, God will love me, God will accept me, that's actually the basis of legalism, not just obeying Christ. That's not necessarily legalistic. It's only when our hearts use those things in order to get God's attention, approval, acceptance, or love. Okay, so now let's look at these new self-clothes. Verse 12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So here's what we have to keep in mind as, as we do this and we look at these things. If our definition of these things, within that definition there is no mention of Jesus Christ, then we do not actually have a proper conception of them, okay? Remember last week's sermon, okay? Our heavenly lives are hidden with Christ in heaven, okay? And we, we use our knowledge that we gain from the heavenly realm where God's will is perfectly done to bring that down to earth. And so if that, those definitions of that new stuff we're supposed to bring down do not have Jesus Christ attached to them, then we, that's not a complete definition of those things. So we have no idea what they look like or how to put them on apart from Christ. Um, this is why you should read the gospel accounts frequently in your life, frequently throughout the course of the year. You should read the gospel accounts to encounter and experience Jesus as he displays how to put these clothes on. His heavenly life is driving him in an earthly body, and he's putting these clothes on all the time. Well, he has them all the way on. He actually doesn't. No one has to ask him to put it on. He's fully clothed in them already. But when we read the gospel accounts, we see what those clothes look like. All right. Compassionate hearts. Literally, this, tra this translates, you're going to love this, feelings from the bowels, okay? <laughs> this is like feels from the inside. Uh, that's why it's translated compassionate hearts. Feeling from the inside. It, it refers to just that gut-wrenching emotional response that you have when you see someone who needs help. The gospel accounts are always attaching this same bowel feeling to Jesus. He's always feeling this gut-wrenching compassion, 
And do you know what always comes after Jesus feels this emotion in the Gospels? Jesus does something for that person. 100% of the time. Whether it be a blind, a lame person, a hungry person, a poor person, a rich person, Jesus shows us that the new self-clothing of compassion is more than just the feels. It's calculated action to help bring that person more closely or more fully into the kingdom of God. First John says this. I'm going to be flipping around a lot in this section so we can see Jesus. So if you're taking notes, just write these references down. You can revisit them. First uh, John 3, verse 16 1 John 3, verse 16, this is uh, Jesus' disciple John, who was probably the closest disciple to Jesus relationally while he was alive. He says this, By this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him or her, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word, or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. When you see your Christian brother or sister in need, compassion isn't just found in what you feel for them, what you say to them, offering to help. Compassion is fully found in what you do to help them. Do we do this? How can we do this more? Kindness. Kindness is the next one. Paul says it like this in Ephesians, which is kind of a sister book to Colossians, if you didn't know that. Um, there, he probably wrote Ephesians right after he wrote Colossians. He wrote this cool letter to the church in Colossae, and he was like, that was a great letter. Everybody needs to hear this. So he wrote this other letter. This is kind of just Bible nerd knowledge. Um, he wrote this other letter called, that's called the Ephesians now, and it was a circular letter that went to all the churches in and throughout Turkey in the first century. And then it came to reside in Ephesus, and so it got called the Ephesians. But he puts it like this in the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Well, what does that mean? It's difficult to separate this word kindness from its other Greek counterpart, which is gentleness. And we see the kindness of gentleness of Christ most clearly in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 Starting in verse 28, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Kindness. Now, don't, don't translate kindness as just niceness here. There still is a yoke that Jesus is talking about here. There's a yoke uh, that Jesus is talking about here. That's interesting, you know? And sometimes it can be the most kind thing that you can do for your Christian brother or sister is to point them that their weariness is the result of some, some sin that, that's in their lives. That's an incredibly kind thing. That's what God does to us. Paul says elsewhere, God's kindness is that which leads us to repentance, okay? Kindness. There's one thing I've learned about us city folk is that we are an anxious, anxious bunch. We're stressed in the city. Anxious bunch. How are we offering each other rest? That's a cool question to ask. 
How are we offering each other rest in this, in this anxious, anxious city? I don't know how to answer that for you. A lot of, each one of these is going to take some creativity on your part. You're going to have to go home and think about this, okay? Uh, humility and meekness. Turn over a, a few pages from the Colossians to Philippians chapter 2. This is incredible. Paul says this to the church in Philippi, which he started. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Asking, he's calling to unity. This is unity here. This is what he follows it up with. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's about to ground it in Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How are we dying for each other? That's what humility and meekness is. How are we sacrificing for one another? Do we do this? How can we do this? How can we do this? Next, patience. Patience. Patience is actually made more clear by the, of the, the phrase that follows it. I, I love this phrase. Um, verse 13, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Don't you love that phrase? This is a grudging willingness to put up with difficult circumstances and difficult people. <laughs> a grudging willingness to do it. It might not be the perfect example of patience. It might not be the perfect example of humility. But it's there. It's sacrifice. And you know what? Even Jesus did it. This is Matthew 17, starting in verse 14. Matthew tells us, And when they came to, uh, to the crowd, that's Jesus and his disciples, they came to a crowd, a man came up to him, that's Jesus, and kneeling before Jesus, he said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he, he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into, into water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I'm not putting that in. It says that. How long? He reiterates it. Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? He wasn't bearing with them and grudging with them to the point where they didn't feel like they could approach him and talk about it. And he said to them, because of your little faith. Jesus bared with his disciples for three years back in the day. And he bears with us today as well. And so we bear with, extend grace, and grudging willingness to press into each other's crap together. That's what we do as the body of Christ. Forgiveness, a, a quick note on forgiveness, we don't have time, this is a whole sermon, but to forgive just as Christ forgave, whoa, what a statement, to forgive just as Christ forgave, it means to absorb the cost of our brothers and our sisters' sin against us, 
without any resentment. Whatever sin, whatever, whichever way that someone's wronged you and it hurts you, it's to absorb it without resentment. That's what forgiving just as Christ forgives is. All right. Um, we have to keep moving. What helps us put these new self-clothes on? Okay, four things. And these are the four things that Paul closes this passage with here. Four things, just like last week. The first one's in verse 14. And above all these, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. First thing is love. And remember, we're in a clothing metaphor still. He uses this word binding. What does that mean? Well, he's using love. In his mind, it's the seam. The seams of a garment. You can't just put on compassion without love. It'll fall off, he says. You can't just put on humility and meekness without love. It'll fall right off. You can't put on patience without love. It'll fall right off. Love is that which stitches this beautiful garment together with all of these new self-qualities so that we might wear it and love one another. Love brings it all Together, that's the first thing. We love, that's why Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to hear it not at a wedding. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries, all the knowledge, and I have all the faith, so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. There's that word again. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You see, love is active. Love does. The question this passage presents us with isn't, are we a nice community that can have pleasant cocktail conversation with each other 10 minutes before, 10 minutes after service, maybe for a couple hours during the week? Which even like sometimes I think we show up late to group because we don't want to talk with people. Show up 20, 30 minutes late, oh, we're not going to start anyway. Are you kidding me? That's 20, 30 minutes of loving each other you just missed out on. No, the real question that Paul puts to us is this. What actions can you point to that proves that you love your brothers and sisters. How can we do this more? There's too many naked Christians in the world. There's too many naked Christians. There's so many people who are really concerned with putting off sin in their lives, putting off the old self. That's great. They've forgotten to put on something, too. Let's not be naked Christians. That's embarrassing. When the church doesn't love itself, that is so embarrassing. The world sees it. It's humiliating. Let's not be naked Christians. All right, what's next? Verse 15. I'm in 1 Corinthians. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful how do we let the peace of Christ rule? The peace of Jesus rule. You see how it's not saying, just find the peace of God within you? It's not, it's not what Paul's saying. He's saying you have to let it rule. You have to let the peace of Christ rule. Give it the driver's seat, 
Stop making it ride the back seat, he says. If there's discord and disunity among you, it means that peace has been riding the back seat. Well, how do we let it rule? Well, simple. We search for places there's disunity among the body of Christ and bring people around a table to talk about it. Letting peace rule challenges our conflict-averse natures. That's counterintuitive. But peacemakers go into battle zones. They go into places where there is conflict to help people fight well, to help people find resolution. I don't think we're that good at this. I think we're really good at letting peace stay in the back seat, not bringing it to the front seat and drive. Let it bring people together who disagree so that they can be found in unity once again. We know that it's hard. We know that it'll take a ton of emotional energy. We know it'll take a ton of time. We know that the outcome is unclear and uncertain. And so I think that's why we let peace stay in the back. Maybe even buckle it up in a car seat. All right, that's the second thing. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The third thing is in verse 16, okay? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So this is similar to peace. If you're a Christian, Paul knows that you already have the word of God within you. The gospel is already alive within your hearts. The question is, are you going to let it dwell richly? Are you going to let it overflow into some actions, you could say? Are you going to let it turn into teaching yourself and other people about it? You see how it's tied to singing songs? What's that about? What's that about? Well, it goes like this. If you look at the the prayer, prayer manual, which is also the worship song manual of the Bible, it's called the Book of Psalms, you can categorize them all in two very broad categories before you can go down into further categories. But they go like this. Several of the songs, the psalms, are sung to God. Adoration. God, you are great. You are merciful. You are my rock and my fortress. I love you, God. And there's another set that goes like this. God is great. God is a rock. God is a fortress. We have both songs sung to God and songs sung about God. To God in a sense, but to each other. And, and that's why we have songs of both variety here at Sedaris. You, part of letting the word re- dwell richly within you is singing songs, and, uh, songs about God to one another. That's part of it. What else does this look like? Um, reading your Bible. Reading your Bible. If, if you struggle to read your, your Bible at least several times a week, talk to your cohort leader about that. Talk to your cohort leader about that. They can help you with that. Something so, that's a huge part of letting the word of God dwell richly within you. Okay? Third thing is cohort leaders should hear job well done. If you're leading a cohort, this is the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, overflowing and helping you teach other people about the word of God. Well done. You're doing this. You're doing this. That's one of the big steps towards Christian unity. Letting the word of Christ dwell richly. The underlying assumption there is that the word of Christ drives unity. And so if we just let it dwell richly, it'll bring unity. Okay. All right, the fourth fourth thing is thankfulness. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Actually, thankfulness has been part of 15, 16, and 17. Thankfulness, these last three verses are dripping with it. Just dripping with thankfulness. 
To give thanks to God is to acknowledge him as creator, the source of all goodness, to acknowledge that all these actions that we do can only come through a heavenly life that is found with Christ on high, that he gives us the power to put on our earthly bodies and love one another. You have the power to do all these things. Christ will give it to you. Absent uh, thankfulness. If, if, if we're not thankful, it alludes to the fact that you're trying to do it on your own. That you, you're not really seeking Christ's embodiment or empowerment. Perhaps you might even be putting these things on covertly as old self-clothes again. And if that's the case, that's okay. It's just time to reorient. It's time to reorient. And that's very simple. You could take the form of a prayer. God, forgive me for thinking in my pride that I have the ability to put on the new self apart from Christ and apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Please show me what's that, what that is like. And when you start to see that crop up in your life, which is way more effective, you'll start giving thanks to God because only he is the one that can enact it effectively, graciously. How hard you wrestle from, how hard you slough out of your cocoon in this life, everlasting eternal ramifications. Jesus referenced this all the time in his earthly ministry. He talked about these things called rewards. If you read the Gospels, you'll bump into it time and time and time again. Rewards, eternal rewards, what's that all about? Well, that's really Jesus saying that as we let our heavenly lives and power and control our earthly bodies, we start to create eternal, changed, heavenly bodies that will continue forever. And so I actually want to close this two-part sermon series with a little bit of a warning, which is counterintuitive. I'd love to close by encouraging you guys. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, this is what Paul says. He picks up on Jesus' um, imagery that he uses to talk about eternal ramifications for our present obedience. He talks about it like this. According to the grace that God had given to me, Paul says, like a skilled and master builder, I laid a foundation. What he's saying is, I, started, uh, I, I helped you find the gospel. I helped you guys start a church. You guys grasp the gospel through me. And someone else is building upon it, whether that be teachers or themselves. Let each one take care on how he builds upon the gospel. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. It's the day when we will be revealed with Christ in glory. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test that what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as through fire. So as we take this two-part sermon into our lives, let's consider the gravity of it. Jesus talked about these issues as having everlasting consequences. Paul believed him. I think we should too. Let us be mindful how we apply this in our lives and love one another. Through doing these four things, we're going to find such amazing unity and love. Let's do it together. Will you pray with me? Father, right now we come before you as, as your body, as your heavenly body, and, and we just want to praise you for choosing us, for loving us, for making us holy, for setting us aside for a special purpose of loving each other and loving the world. Right now, as we consider what that looks like in our own lives, I just pray that you would empower uh, my friends to just humbly consider it through your spirit. 
that they would be able to tie tangible ways to be compassionate, have compassionate hearts, to lean into kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, that we might bear with each other well, forgive one another beautifully, so as to magnify your name. Thank you for my friends. I uh, pray for my friends who, who, who are here that might not yet call themselves a Christian. I, I thank you that you have given them such a, a clear glimpse through your word into what the Christian life is all about, a life of unity amidst diversity. And so I pray that you would continue to, to bring them back and, and, and shelter the, the word as it was preached in their hearts. pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.